If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. The great thing about the protests of the past month is not just that they've been so massive, so sustained, so diverse, so inspiring. The best thing is that they are not about Donald Trump. That's what Dahlia Lithwick says. We'll speak with her later in the show. But first, Friday is Juneteenth, the day, June 19th, when black people in America celebrate the end of slavery. For comment, we turn to Robin Kelly. He's professor of African-American studies at UCLA. He studies social movements. He's the author of many books. I think my favorite is Thelonious Monk, The Life and Times of an American Original. He's also the author of Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination. Robin, welcome to the program. Thanks, John. It's always great to be with you. I never knew much about Juneteenth. What should we know? Well, there are a lot of myths around Juneteenth. I mean, it is widely celebrated as Emancipation Day. As we know, it doesn't formally mark the end of legal chattel slavery because that's the 13th Amendment. So on June 19th, 1865, uh, the story goes, this is when enslaved people in Texas allegedly learned that uh, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, keep in mind, this is two months after the official end of the war. So Robert E. Lee surrenders at Appomattox in April and so apparently people in Texas don't know that the war is over. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. I mean, it is true that, that the Union forces came into Galveston under Brigadier General Gordon Granger. He read the statement declaring that Black people are free, that slavery is over on June 19th. That's what people remember. But the fact of the matter is that a lot of Black Texans and slave people knew the war was over or about to end. Uh, and, and Texas actually had its own Union Army, about 2,000 uh, men, mostly German emigres, who came from the 1848 uh, revolutions and settled in Texas. So the, the story is dramatic in the sense that Texas is then identified as the last place where slavery kind of officially ended. Uh, and initially, the celebration around Juneteenth wasn't called Juneteenth, it was called Jubilee. You know, it's Jubilee celebrated all over the country among former enslaved people. And of course, Jubilee refers to the biblical Jubilee in Leviticus chapter 25 or Isaiah chapter 21, where, you know, there's a promise that, that the land would be, be returned to God and that all debts would be canceled and that all slaves would be free. And so it's, it held on to this idea of Jubilee up until about the 1890s, and that's when you begin to hear or at least see in print uh, the use of the term Juneteenth to refer to um, to kind of Texas Emancipation Day. And it's, it's just it's a Texas thing. It really didn't become a nationwide point of celebration really until the mid-20th century. Yeah, I read in the New York Times that some 
big cities, including Atlanta and Washington, uh, started holding large Juneteenth events, I think in the 70s, parades and, and festivals. But but Texas and Galveston was always really the center. Galveston holds 15 events, parades, barbecues, music shows, and a beauty contest. And 10,000 people go to the Galveston events. Exactly, exactly. And, and the Galveston events, the Texas events have been covered. Like if you read the Chicago Defender, which is the black press, they'd have stories about it. But now one thing to keep in mind is that by the early 20th century, Juneteenth celebrations really began to shrivel. I mean, there were very few, even in Texas, during the early era of Jim Crow. And then it makes a comeback, you know, in the 30s and 40s. And after World War II, it spreads with the great Black migration, you know. So especially in in California. California is a big Juneteenth place. Mm -hmm. So you have Black migrants leaving Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, ending up in California, ending up in Chicago, ending up in Baltimore. But in California, it was a big, huge thing. When I came up uh, as a young person, when I moved to California in the 70s, uh, Juneteenth celebrations were, were huge. The other thing is that Juneteenth becomes an official state holiday in 1979. But one thing I really want to emphasize about Juneteenth, it's, it's parades, it's picnics, but it was also historically a space for political gatherings. You know, this is a time of, of reflection where uh, African-Americans in the 19th century and 20th century had discussions about the right to vote, about the right to land, about how to create political institutions. And as we move into the mid 20th century, for example, the Poor People's Campaign, you know, after King, uh, Dr. King was assassinated in April, the Poor People's Campaign continued to take off in DC and they held a Juneteenth rally for solidarity in the nation's capital that attracted about 60,000 people. You know? And so they chose Juneteenth for a reason because it, you know, it, it wasn't just about emancipation, it was a recognition that the struggle for abolition wasn't over yet. And that this would be a day of reflection, much like July 4th in the antebellum period became a day of reflection for enslaved people and and abolitionists. And one thing I should also mention is that Juneteenth was chosen by the Black Radical Congress uh, for its founding convention in 1998. Um, So there are a, a lot of sort of moments, even to this day, where this day is a day of of political struggle, reflection, and trying to chart a new future. A day of reflection. And now, of course, we're reflecting on the latest death of a black man at the hands of the police. Rayshard Brooks was shot in the back by a cop in Atlanta on Friday night at a Wendy's. The police said they had been called because he was sleeping in his car. I have to say that, you know, I saw the, um, the, um, the footage from uh, the body cam. And that was the saddest thing I had seen, I don't know, maybe ever. Uh, Because, you know, of course the killing of George Floyd was horrific. You know, you see someone, you know, screaming uh, just to live. But in the case of Rayshard Brooks, his encounter with the police proved why police are dangerous. Yeah. Um, Here's someone who who really didn't commit a crime. So they pull him out of the car 
and give him this really long sobriety test where he basically passes and then give him the breathalyzer test, which he fails barely. But what's interesting is that he then offers to walk home. He says, look, I'll leave the car. My sister lives you know, down the street. I'll walk home. That's the point at which, you know, if he were not who he was, a black man in this, circ- in this circumstance, the cops would have said, you know what, we'll es- escort you home. <laughs> you know, we'll make sure you get home safely because you didn't really commit a real crime. You know, just, just get home, leave your car. Because the idea is that the police are supposed to, to provide safety. And instead, they put the handcuffs on him to arrest him. That's the point where in my, when I'm looking at this scene, all I see are slave patrols and uh, an enslaved person trying to escape or a lynch mob. I mean, this is what I see, this, this physical reaction to what is essentially an unjust arrest is to me the correct reaction. That is, you escape because the consequences are so much greater. I mean, think about it. He understands the way systemic racism works, that he not only will, might be caught in jail, won't be able to see his daughter for the weekend, but most importantly, he may get a conviction, which may lead to the loss of his job, which may lead to a, a life of struggling to get a job. You know, he doesn't even know what's going to happen to him in jail. He's afraid. So he's fighting for his life, and, and he gets two bullets in the back. That's astounding, and it's astounding in light of massive global protests that are saying we need to not just defund the police, but abolish the police because the police make us dangerous. The police are killing us. This is a, really a turning point for a lot of people. I mean, but then again, look, there's so many turning points. I, I mean, we're just going around in circles, I'm dizzy from turning points. There's one other thing that makes that body cam footage so so unbearably sad. He's very cooperative, very friendly, and he tells them it's his daughter's ninth birthday, and so he's had a little too much to drink. That's when the cops kill him. Right, mm. right. And when you think about the alternative, of course, the alternative would have been to just let him go. You know, you want yeah. to go? Go. They put themselves in danger. They put everyone in the parking lot in danger. But the other thing I think that's worth thinking about is why, why, why at that moment did he act the way he did? You could see palpable fear. Um, he did everything right, and he's, and he's dead. You know? What we don't know are all the other cases like this, you know, that are not captured on video. And let me just say, this is not just the view of uh, Robin Kelly, you know, black, political, radical. This is uh, the DA for Fulton County said that Rayshard Brooks, quote, did not seem to present any kind of threat to anyone, close quote. And that's why the cop was fired and maybe charged with uh, murder later this week. So th- there's really no debate about what happened in Atlanta. Right. Well, let's talk about let's talk about how the bigger picture here of how the protest marches are continuing, many ways expanding here in L.A., where we record our show. Thirty thousand people marched through Hollywood on Sunday afternoon, totally peacefully. But this wasn't the usual march. Right. This was the um, all Black Lives Matter march that in some ways displaced what would have been 
the 50th anniversary of, of gay pride, pride parade. And it's a very interesting politics because as you know, having written a brilliant book about LA, uh, the, the pride parade begins in Los Angeles. Yes. And it begins in Los Angeles with a political agenda, a political agenda that is actually very, very, very critical of police. Even though they, they struggled to get their parade permit, um, this was a, a, a march that basically was against police oppression because police oppression, police violence actually was a source of mobilizing for the LGBTQ community in LA. So here we are 50 years later and the gay pride people are like, well, we, we want to permit, you know, and all Black Lives, the Black Lives Matter and all Black Lives Matter people are like a permit. We don't want to cooperate with the police which to me makes perfect sense. But most importantly, here's a march that, you know, was for Black lives that also struggled to define Black lives to include trans, queer, lesbian, gay, differently abled, I mean, all Black lives. And it was so radical. And of course, as you know what happened, they painted this beautiful mural on the street, Hollywood Boulevard, all Black Lives Matter, which I think the city has already removed. So imagine how different, you know, it's, it's symbolic, but how different politics could have been in Los Angeles had they said, you know what, this is going to be a permanent fixture. This is going to be a permanent part of our city of Los Angeles to remind us of our history and legacy. And in fact, we're not even going to, main, we're not even going to keep it there. We're going to maintain it, make sure that it's repainted and you know, maintained beautifully. But that's not where we are right now, unfortunately. But it's a historic event. A coming together of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and the, the LGBTQ movement, and in the streets with 30,000 people on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. It's a great day. Right. You know, let, let me just add one small thing about this, because All Black Lives Matter, in many ways, was the slogan for the original Black Lives Matter in, Movement. I mean, when you think about its formation, the three main founders are all queer Black women, uh, many of whom have had histories in, in social movements before that. Alicia Garza was head of, of Power, based in the Bay Area. You have um, Patrice Cullors, who was part of the strat Labor Community Strategy Center in L.A. Noel Pultometti, of course, uh, working with Black immigrant rights. Just generally speaking, they come out of a legacy where groups like the Third World Women's Alliance and the Combahee River Collective have actually made the argument that all Black lives matter. In fact, if you think about the Combahee River Collective, which we don't always talk about, they were demanding, you know, not just a kind of race and gender integrated social democracy, but a real deeper disordering of a kind of racist capitalist heteropatriarchy. I mean, they wanted to create a non-racist, non-sexist society but they they said that it could not be made under capitalism. And so for them, gender politics, sexual politics were not sideline issues, but central issues, not just for identity, but for understanding power and understanding how people could live their lives under uh, a system of exploitation and how to dismantle a system of exploitation, which exploits both in the realm of production and reproduction uh, and household labor. You know, so... In many ways, Black Lives Matter has always been aligned with 
the LGBTQ community. The question is whether or not that elements of that community were aligned with Black Lives Matter. Well, I'm still thinking about the testimony before Congress last week of the brother of George Floyd, Philanese Floyd. Am I pronouncing yeah, his Philanese, name right? Philanese, yeah. What did you think about that speech? Oh, boy. It's, it's, it gets me as emotional as, um, as the killing of Rayshard Brooks. I've heard this speech my entire life. I'm amazed by the eloquence of Black family members who lost loved ones. We saw it even after the killing of Rayshard Brooks, but in the case of Philanese Floyd, he is basically saying, I want justice uh, for my brother. I want cops to not be the problem, but possibly the solution, knowing that he's living in communities where they were never the solution. I mean, this is the thing. There's no reason for the communities out of which people like Philanese Floyd come, come out of should ever trust the police. In the case of George Floyd in particular, although it's been mentioned and distributed by right-wing groups, this is a man who has a relationship with the criminal justice system, who served time in in jail, in prison, who has a a criminal record, like so many Black people. And yet his brother insisted on his right to live and his right to be a respected human being. He also underscored, which is to me the saddest part, of exactly what Rayshard Brooks did. That is, that George Floyd didn't just comply, but he did exactly what white supremacy told him to do. That is, you speak to a person of authority using the term sir. He kept saying, sir, please, sir, sir. He was respectful. He did not resist arrest. And, you know, he lived a life in which he was trying to reverse the impact of a criminal justice system that had marked him as unworthy and devalued. It's really tragic. And, and like I've said before, I've heard this speech my entire life. You know, I was, I was two years old when James Powell was killed in Harlem. I was living in, in New York. Um, I mean, I don't remember that as a two-year-old, but I wow. remember my mother talking about it when I was a five-year-old, that, that the killing of James Powell, 15-year-old kid, by the police, by the NYPD, was the spark for the 1964 rebellion in Harlem. I remember every year from 1968, 69, 70, and then when I moved to Seattle and then moved to LA, there's always cases of Black people killed by the police. I remember Eula Love so vividly, you know, and I, and again, I've always heard the same speeches, you know, this person was a good person. They didn't have to die. You know, why can't the police change? Well, we know the police can't change, so therefore we have to eliminate them and replace them with something else. And that, that's where I think this political moment is so unique. It's unlike any political moment we've reached where there's a, building a consensus around not just moving budgets, taking money, from away, take, take money away from police budgets, but actually rebuilding something else that really is about Uh, establishing and securing public safety for all of us, you know, because we live in communities, many people I know that I grew up with live in communities that are simply not safe, and not because of the neighbors, but because of the police. Robin Kelly, he teaches at UCLA. Thank you, Robin. Great to have you here with us today. Thanks, John. It's always a pleasure.
The great thing about the protests of the past month is not just that they've been so massive, so sustained, so diverse, so inspiring. The best thing is that they are not about Donald Trump. That's what Dahlia Lithwick says. She writes about the courts and the law for Slate, and she hosts the podcast Amicus. Last time we spoke here, it was about the legal challenges to Trump declaring a national state of emergency to respond to what he called an invasion at the southern border. Dahlia, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. Okay, these protests are not about Trump. What would you say they are about and why? Why is that a great thing? Well, because I think that Trump was always the symptom of the fundamental problem and not the problem itself. And I think that as long as we held him out to be everything that needed to change in America, we were eliding the real issues. And the real issues, in my view, go back centuries, and they have to do with systemic racial injustice, with systemic profound distortions about gender, you know, economic inequality, all of the things that in some sense created Donald Trump, but are not about Donald Trump. And so for me, you know, I, I was the person for the last three and a half years saying, why aren't people on the streets? Why aren't people on the streets? You know, he's putting children in cages and then why don't people care? And I I really had to reckon with the fact that I was wrong and that in some sense, if you think Trump is the problem, you're taking him seriously and he's not serious. But the injustices that we are now out on the streets protesting are America laid bare and that is serious, but it's, Trump is sort of adjacent to those problems. Okay, I agree completely. Trump is the symptom of our problems, not the cause. But you also say, quote, Trump doesn't matter, close quote. Isn't that going a little too far? I, I think that I'm trying to respond to the thousand people a day who tell me, I'm sure they're the same people who tell you, ignore him, ignore him, right? Why are you amplifying his tweets? Why is there a photo of him, you know, on your social media? Ignore him. And you can't ignore him. He's the commander in chief. He has the codes, right, to uh, uh, the nuclear arsenal. You don't get to ignore him. And I think what I was trying to say is, let's make him the size that he is in reality. And the size that he is, is a kind of cartoonish, laughable aberration that we are stuck with. Contend with him on that ground, not on the ground that he is some, you know, oracular prophet, some important and and signifying character. He's a silly character. And I think he's a silly character that reflects back on us how silly we are. I think that is something to take seriously, our own silliness and our own shallowness and our own attention deficit need for fame. (laughs) But I think we have to make him the size that he is. And so you're right. When I I say he's tiny, I guess I'm being rhetorical. But but I want to believe he is tiny and that we are big. And that's what we should be focusing on. Yeah, you have in your piece at Slate, why bother protesting a reality show when reality itself is a daily nightmare? That's pretty great. 
On your most recent Amicus podcast, you talked with Vanita Gupta, who had been head of the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department in the Obama years. She said the Obama Justice Department investigated, I think it was 25 police departments for systematic misconduct out of something like 16,000 in the United States. I mean, William Barr is terrible. I don't think he's investigated one, but 25 doesn't seem to be enough either. I think her point was actually really important. Her point is that the notion of holding the police to account that that could just turn into this Pandora's box of every single police department in the country being under a consent decree, every single police department being, you know, under judicial scrutiny. That's just a fallacy that even in, on her watch under Eric Holder, it is the, the bar is so high to launch one of these pattern and practice investigations to get to the point where there is an actual consent decree. And I think what she wanted to say is, the idea today that they only did 20 whatever invest such investigations uh, seems like a lot because as she said in the sessions bar uh, uh, time uh, as attorneys general there's been one 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 but the point is that that 20 is a lot the point is that even if there should have been thousands and i would submit what we now know about what happened to George Floyd, what we knew about Eric Garner, what we are now seeing video evidence of every day, uh, suggests that 20 is a really low number, really low, and that it's very, very hard to bring these cases, to bring these investigations, to get a process in place that holds anyone to account, and that we shouldn't assume that the existence of those investigations means witch hunts for every bad cop. It's just, it's a super, super, super hard thing to effectuate. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. I think that's what she was saying. Well, the Democrats in Congress are on the move right now. They've proposed a big bill to reform the police in America. Lots, lots of stuff in it. They want to make it easier to sue police officers for misconduct in civil court, make it easier to prosecute bad cops for criminal behavior. They want to ban the chokehold, require body cams, and they want to give the Justice Department Civil Rights Division subpoena power to investigate local police departments. And the bill would create a national database disclosing the names of officers who have a pattern of abuse. All that sounds good. What do you think is the most important things on that list? I, probably all of that. Look, we're having this amazing conversation, this defund the police conversation. And yeah. yet again, we're having it about nomenclature, which is not, I think, the most useful component of, right? Everybody's like, I wish they'd called it, you know, pink petunia instead of like, it's such a silly side fight about what we call it. And I think that what it's raising is a question about, we can't keep treating violent racialized policing as a, a problem of a few bad apples. 
and that that story that the police are by and large a benevolent benevolent uh, force that exists to bring peace and order uh, to all aspects of our lives is just false and it's particularly false when it comes to minority communities and I think that at the heart of this fight there is a question about Defunding the police doesn't mean, you know, we pull all the cops off the beat and grow, grow flowers. It means that we massively, massively reorganize how we spend money and rededicate the proposition that public funds go to education and healthcare and other things that we have subordinated to police power. And so I think that you know, on the merits, there's absolutely nothing wrong with any of the things you've described. On the merits, it's clear qualified immunity and uh, lack of transparency have kept those quote unquote bad apples, <laughs> you know, moving from police force to police force. And, and that's why you get claims that people have 17, 18, 19 instances, such as the one uh, that's finally taped. I think that's all essential. And I don't, want to diminish the value of anything that increases transparency and increases uh, accountability. But I think I would probably side with people like Vanita, who is hardly a radical, who say that foundationally what needs to change is the way we think about policing and funding the police and not you know it, it goes to over incarceration and over criminalization and three strikes and a decades-long project in this country to put everybody in jail which has profited nobody except the for-profit prison industry but i think in a deep way it requires edging away from claims that there are one or two bad apples on every police force and edging into a deep, deep soul-searching conversation about what we fund and what we value and why. And I think that conversation is, if it happens under the rubric of defund the police, I say more power to it. I don't know that we can get there, but I do think that I am seeing this as a transformational moment in terms of public attention to the questions that go beyond simply accountability for a few bad apples and really ask why we have militarized police officers, you know, dressed for war and driving tanks down the streets. I think those questions are as integral and essential as questions about accountability. So the problem is not Donald Trump. The most fundamental problem is not police misconduct. As you said, it, all, it goes much deeper than that. We are seeing how much more deep it goes. The protests are now against the real problems in America, the historical power of white supremacy. The challenge is not just to Donald Trump, but to the system that made him possible and made him successful. Does that mean things are going to get better now, do you think? You know, I've reflected on that a lot. One of the things that's really been heartening to me, this is going to sound so corny, I'm going to say it, but I think that what's really heartening is that this is largely a leaderless movement, that Joe Biden is is sort of circling somewhere, and I don't in any way want to diminish uh, the force of what he's trying to do, but I don't think this is about Joe Biden any more than it's about Donald Trump. 
I, I sort of started this conversation with you by saying this is about us. I really think that what is powerful to me is the slightly narcotized reality show life we had been living that got us a Donald Trump is the thing that I think is being dislodged. And again, I've spent the last few years thinking, oh my God, we all jump from Robert Mueller is going to save us. And then, uh, you know, Senate Democrats during the impeachment are going to say, I mean, we are fall in love. It's like bad chiclet, right? With like one hero after another that's going to fix this for us. And in some sense, that too, I think, is a symptom of the problem. And so what I'm really moved and chuffed by in this particular moment is, of course, we're seeing extraordinary Black leadership, and it's so important, and it is so important that minority voices are being listened to and amplified. But I just think this is, in some sense, the possibility for change really requires kind of weird street politics of the sort I think the framers protected, right, in the, in the First Amendment, the idea that what you do is you get on the streets and you talk to each other and you shout at each other and you work through your stuff. And the exact opposite of street politics is Donald Trump. And so I guess in a strange way, even though I, I frankly am terrified, and I think I said in the piece, you know, I think we should in no way minimize Donald Trump's capacity to make everything terrible. And he is, he has, you know, Lafayette Square is terrible. And what Bill Barr has done at the Justice Department is unconscionable. But I think that the leaderlessness of this and the almost complete absence of passing the buck and so hoping someone else is going to fix it is really, I think, ennobling and long overdue and gives me at least some hope that we're not looking to the next hero to fix it. We have given up on that fantasy. It was always a bit childish. I think, I think it's time. What's great about this moment is it's not about Donald Trump. It's about us. Dahlia Lithwick wrote about why this time is different for Slate. She also hosts the terrific podcast, Amicus. Dahlia, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Take good care. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at 
thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.